weekend looking at the subject of biblical covenants. And I'd like for us to at least read uh, Hebrews chapter 13, verses 20 to 21. And these uh, are the words of the benediction to this great epistle. And the writer to the Hebrews, whoever he was, says, Now the God of peace, verse 20, Now the God of peace, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So let's pray and ask for the Lord's help. Father, thank you for gathering us here. Thank you for songs of praise where we can exalt you and exalt your Son and give you thanks through your Holy Spirit. And Father, we thank you for the great work of redemption. Lord, truly we glory in our Redeemer. Jesus has paid it all, all to him we owe. And Lord, we pray now that as we as we study this, this great subject, we pray that you would help us to, to be alert and to think, and we pray that your spirit would help us to not only just have a better mental grasp of, of the way that you work through history, but Father, we pray that you would give us eyes to see how these things apply to us and how they can change our lives. And so we pray that you would sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So, every new Christian, when they come to the Bible, makes an immediate observation. Tell me whether this is true or not. That is, you come to this big giant book, and then you realize that although it's one book, it's got two parts. And those two parts seem very different. You have the big part, the Old Testament, and then you have a much smaller part, which is the New Testament, and you begin to realize that even though it's one book, these two testaments are, are in a sense, very different, right? Um, nobody brought a lamb in today. Um, nobody's dressed with a, a, a turban and priestly garments. And, and you start to realize that there are things in the Old Testament that we don't do anymore. So then questions start to, to come up. So how does the Old Testament apply to me? Okay. I, want to may, I may want to take a proof text uh, from Leviticus to persuade you not to get a tattoo, but then I also have to try to persuade you not to wear polyester and cotton. Okay? You understand what I'm saying? So, so how does the Old Testament relate to the, a Christian? But even more fundamental than that, how does the Old Testament relate to the New? How does the new relate to the old? And so the more that you read your Bible, the more you come to realize that there are these incredibly complex issues of what, what we're going to call continuity and discontinuity. As you look at the two testaments and how they fit together, you begin to realize that the issues of what is it that's the same and what is it that's different between the two testaments 
these end up being huge questions. So I'm going to suggest to you that understanding the covenants and what God reveals in the covenants is actually crucial for understanding so much of God's word. All right. So I have I have five reasons why understanding the covenants is critical. All right. I'm going to give those to you. And then after I give those to you, those will be fairly uh, stirring to your soul. Then I will bore you to death with some history. All right. So I would say the first reason that we need to understand covenant is because the covenants play either a central or I would prefer to say the central role in redemptive history. Because what we have in the Bible is we have the inspired revelation of God working in redemptive history. And so the, uh, the fact is, is that the central role of uh, redemptive history is manifest in covenants. And so God unfolds his plan and he unfolds his plan in all different ways. But what I'm suggesting is, is that he primarily unfolds his plan through covenants. So God reveals the unfolding plan of his redemption, which culminates in Christ through a progression of covenants. All right, so that's number one. The second reason why covenants end up being so important is because the covenants provide, as it were, the unifying theme between the Old Testament and the New Testament. In other words, it's in understanding the way that the covenants work that we understand then better how the old and the new relate to each other and how we are to understand that relationship between the old and the new. So, central role of redemptive, redemptive history, unifying theme of the old and the new testament, but third, the covenants as a unifying theme do something else for us. And that is, they, the, the way that the covenants work is they end up forming, as it were, um, a theological framework that helps us interpret the Bible. Okay? In other words, the covenants end up forming an interpretive lens for us so that we can understand the theology of the Bible better. So Spurgeon, did you know that he's related to Spurgeon? I didn't know that, actually. I felt honored to be eating lunch <laughs> at his house. It's true, right? My grandmother is his grandniece. Yeah, see? So, he can verify that Spurgeon actually said this. <laughs> so Spurgeon, in, in a famous sermon called The Covenant, says, The doctrine of the covenant lies at the root of all true theology. That's, that's quite a statement, really, when you think about it, right? The doctrine of the covenant lies at the root of all true theology. Spurgeon goes on, he says, It has been said that he who well understands the distinction between the covenant of works and the covenant of grace is a master of divinity. I am persuaded that most of the mistakes which men make concerning the doctrines of Scripture are based upon fundamental errors with regard to the covenants of law and grace. Wow. And that's, that's 
really quite a, quite a claim, but I think Spurgeon is right. I think most of the errors that we end up encountering, especially in our own day, really go back to a, to a fundamentally flawed perspective on the way that the covenant helps us understand the Bible theologically. Number four, understanding the covenants. Okay, now I'm going to throw in covenant theology, if you will. All right? So we're kind of jumping from understanding the covenants to the theology that that gives us, covenant theology. So understanding covenant theology gives us a framework for understanding the doctrines of the work of Christ and the doctrine of salvation. Now, I don't think anybody would disagree with the fact that, that the doctrine of Christ, his person and work, is absolutely crucial, and that the doctrine of salvation is absolutely crucial, but I'm suggesting that it is actually covenant theology which gives us the best framework for mo most accurately understanding the person and work of Christ and the application of salvation, all right? So that ends up being uh, hugely important. And in fact, going back to Spurgeon's comment, one of the things, one of the reasons why we end up having, for instance, all of these debates over the nature of justification, in many ways goes back to um, when people start denying certain aspects of covenant theology. And I'll demonstrate that at the next session, which is tonight, right? Okay. And then number five, understanding the covenants, or if you will, covenant theology, is what gives clarity to such issues as the nature of the church and the proper subjects of baptism. So, what's the name of your church? Providence. Providence Baptist Church. Okay, right? So, by the way, historically, that is much more a statement about understanding the nature of the church than it is about how we do baptism. Okay? How we do baptism, who we baptize and how, is actually the fruit of understanding the nature of the church. Who's in the church, who's not in the church. And I don't mean the building, I mean those who are in Christ and those who are not. And it is actually covenant theology that gives us the greatest clarity on what the church is and then the way baptism should be administered. Now, um, obviously we come to this from a, a certain perspective and out of, um, out of fairness to the other perspectives, um, there are... There are different approaches to understanding the Bible, right? And um, I have a pretty cool chart. You can see that, right? Okay, so <laughs> actually on this it says systems of continuity and discontinuity. All right, so what I want you to do is I want you just to kind of picture this in, in, in your mind, if you will. So, so our approach to the Bible and, and to the Old Testament and the New Testament is greatly influenced by how much continuity we see and how much discontinuity we see. Our approach to the Bible is governed greatly by how much of 
we see in common and how much we see as dissimilar. Okay? And so it's also uh, greatly affected by whether or, or what, what we think the unifying theme of the Bible is. Okay? So some systems are based on what we could call sort of a radical discontinuity. Okay? So if, if you could imagine my chart, so over here I have discontinuity, okay? And then over here I have continuity, okay? So this is the spectrum. Over here on the, the far side on discontinuity is what would be typically called uh, classical dispensationalism, right? That is based on a view of history that is basically um, uh, antitheses, right? Contrasts. So discontinuity. So you have uh, two peoples of God. You have law versus grace. You have, um, you have seven uh, periods of time that are all based on a probationary test which all end in failure and no two are alike, right? So you have these discontinuities. So think of, of um, in fact, in the old, the original Schofield Reference Bible, um, you were saved by works under the Mosaic Covenant, okay? Over here, all the way over here, you have, let's call it radical continuity, which would be what I'm going to call just classical covenant theology, all right? Now, the reason I say radical continuity is because the tendency in what we're going to call classical covenant theology is to flatline the differences between the old and the new. So, and we'll, we'll talk a lot more about this, but for instance, in this view, the new covenant is actually not new. In this view, it's more like the renewed covenant. Okay? Um, baptism and circumcision are the same. Baptism's a little better, but that you, so you see these lines of continuity. Now we're going to talk about that, and then you have views that kind of work their way more towards sort of towards a more balanced perspective. Okay, so I'm just telling you right up front, I'm going to give you the most biblically balanced perspective. All right, now, so as we as we think about this, understand that everybody fits somewhere on that spectrum of continuity and discontinuity. And, and what we're trying to do is we're trying to do justice to the, to the promise fulfillment structure of the Old and New Testaments. We're, we're trying to do justice to what the Bible says is the same and what the Bible says is different. That's what everybody, in a sense, is, is trying to do. And so for our purposes, since this is Providence Baptist Church. Okay? For our purposes, what we're going to do is we're going to take a very quick look at classic covenant theology. So I hope you don't mind. Do you mind if we do just a little bit of history and theology? Is that, is that okay? I know it's warm. I know it's late in the afternoon. And this may dissuade you from coming back. But just hang in there with me, all right? So when I say classic covenant theology... I'm talking about the, 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 the version of covenant theology that started in the 16th century, time of the Reformation, 
Um, there, understand there were covenant themes that were always present in the church. The, the, you can't escape that. You go back to the church fathers. And of course they're talking about covenant. Why? Because the Bible talks about covenant. But when we're talking about classic covenant theology, we're going back to people like Zwingli and Bollinger and Calvin. And, um, and then it kind of develops 17th century with a bunch of people that you're probably not overly interested in, so that's fine. And so basically the, the, the form of it ends up being um, uh, put into the Westminster Confession of Faith. All right? That is, in a sense, the classic expression of the we in the Westminster Confession of Faith. And so let me just tell you what it is very quickly. From this perspective of classic covenant theology, there are three basic covenants. Okay. The first is the covenant of works, which is between God and Adam and Adam's posterity in the garden. We're going to look at that tonight. Okay. So the covenant of works. Then the second covenant that would be emphasized would be the covenant of redemption. Now the covenant of redemption is... It's an eternal covenant, that is, it, it happened in eternity past, pretemporal. It is a Trinitarian covenant, that is, it's made between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, where they plan our redemption. And we'll talk about that later, too. But then here's, here's, the, here's the last one, and that is the covenant of grace. Okay? So you have covenant of works, covenant of redemption, and the covenant of grace. For the most part... The covenant of grace is viewed as being a covenant made between God and the elect with Christ as the mediator, but I actually left out a very important part. The covenant of grace is made with Christ as mediator and the elect and their seed. That is their children. Okay? You following? Okay. So the covenant of grace is made with the elect and their seed. Now, the covenant of grace, they would argue, is, is first given in Genesis 3.15. All right? Now, we're, we're going to say that what happens in Genesis 3.15 is profoundly important, but it was not the establishment of the uh, covenant of grace. We're going to argue that it was the promise of, of the covenant of grace. Okay? Big difference between saying it got established in Genesis 3.15 and saying it got promised in Genesis 3.15. And of course, Genesis 3.15, okay, so this is Bible camp, so Bible quiz, Genesis 3.15. I'll put enmity between <laughs> Lucas, Luke, Lucas, guitar player Luke. Your seed and her seed. Yeah, very good, very good. That was great. And um, yeah, so this is God is actually speaking to uh, to Satan, to speaking to the serpent, and he tells the serpent in the garden that I'm going to put enmity. So you know, obviously conflict between your seed and her seed, right? You, uh, your children and 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 her children. Now, of course, as you study Genesis, what you begin to realize is that we're not talking about 
as if Satan had physical descendants, right? The, the battle between the two seeds, as it were, is manifest almost immediately in biblical history with Cain and Abel, right? And that, that track ends up uh, being laid all through the book of Genesis, all right? So there's this enmity. Now, now some people read it and just go, people are going to be afraid of snakes, and that's all it's saying. It's saying way more than that. And that is that there's going to be the seed of the woman and then the seed of the serpent. So Jesus can say in John 8.44, you are of your father the devil, right? He's not saying that, that, that Satan literally sired you. What he's saying is, is that you belong to the devil's family because you do the works of your father, right? So here's this, this broad promise. But then what God does in Genesis 3.15 is that he then narrows it. I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman, your seed and her seed, and then he... <laughs> so in a sense it goes from a collective idea of seed then to a singular idea of seed, and he shall crush your head and you, serpent, will bruise his heel. This is the first gospel promise, right? Because it's fulfilled in Jesus Christ who is the seed of the woman. And so the gospel is promised there, but this perspective, important, says the covenant of grace is established here. All right? Now, here, here ends up being um, the distinctive of, of this perspective. So they would argue that the covenant of grace is one covenant throughout all of Bible history. From Genesis to Revelation, what you have is one covenant in substance. So in other words, the, the covenant of grace as it's established in Genesis 3.15 is the same covenant that is in the covenant with Noah and the covenant with Moses, covenant with Abraham. It's the same covenant. It's just differently administered. Right? One covenant, different administrations. And of course, the administrations fall under two massive um, categories. That is old and new. All right? So, substance, the substance of the covenant would refer to the internal reality of the covenant. The administration of the covenant would refer to the external application of the covenant. All right. So I know this is this is a little this is a, a, a little dense, but so here's the idea: you have an external administration, an internal administration. The external administration is applied physically, externally to the physical seed of God's people. The internal uh, administration is spiritual and only applies to the elect or true believers. So here's, here's the result, all right? So, so if that seemed confusing, then here's, here's the simple result. This view of the covenant of grace says that in the covenant of grace, you have, by definition, both believers and unbelievers, okay? Now, the covenant of grace is administered under the Noahic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, 
Did you hear that? The covenant of grace is administered through the Mosaic covenant. So the Mosaic covenant, the law of Moses, is an administration of the covenant of grace. Davidic covenant, new covenant. So in substance, they're all the same covenant. The administration just is different um, circumstances, right? Different pieces. I, I was going to bring my copy of the Westminster Confession and I forgot it. Uh, this is actually explicitly stated in chapter 7, verse uh, paragraphs 5 and 6 of the Westminster Confession. By the way, if, if, if this kind of stuff interests you, there's a, there's a website called progonosco.com that gives a, a, a tabular comparison between the Westminster Confession, the Savoy Declaration, and the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith. And, and they highlight in red what's uh, distinct about. You get to chapter 7 and you do a comparison and you realize the, the, the Baptist Confession of Faith is much shorter on chapter 7 than the Westminster Confession because the Westminster Confession is talking about how the covenant of grace is administered through all these different covenants, all right? So the Abrahamic covenant, so, so follow me here, the Abrahamic covenant would be, from this perspective, the covenant of grace, right? And the Mosaic covenant would be covenant of grace, legally administered, but the covenant of grace. The Davidic covenant, same covenant, added promise. New covenant is simply the final form of the covenant of grace, all right? Now, um, who do you think is the mediator of the covenant of grace? It's Christ. Okay. Now, think with me. The covenant of grace, by necessity, they would say, by design, is therefore always a mixed covenant. Okay. By the way, even the new covenant is by necessity a mixed covenant. You know what I mean by a mixed covenant? That is, you have believers and unbelievers in that covenant. Now think about this for a second. Under this system, this struck me the other day, we, uh, Ariel and I are reading through Matthew in, in the mornings, and this struck me the other day because what did you have to do to become a member of the covenant of grace under the Old Testament? What was the, what was the right of, of admission into the covenant? Circumcised. Okay. Circumcision. We'll talk about circumcision tomorrow. I, I love preaching on circumcision. Um, <laughs> if you preach through Genesis and Galatians... You know, you end up just talking about circumcision a lot. And then visitors come and they're like, well, it's like the circumcision church. But, um, I always assure people after preaching on circumcision, we're not going to have an altar call. <laughs> so, so under this system, the, the Pharisees, 
would have been in the covenant of grace with Christ as their mediator. Now, from a classic perspective, they don't think that that's a problem. Why? Because you have external and internal administration. All right? Now, it is, it is this, it is this uh, perspective that has created, in, in my estimation, two profoundly unbiblical problems. Okay? First, it is this view of radical continuity of the covenant of grace that is the justification for paedo-baptists, that is people that baptize their babies, to baptize their children because you have to understand how this works in, in, in the way that they think. So Abraham was circumcised along with, okay, with his, with his uh, Ishmael and then Isaac, but by the way, also all of his household, right? All of his household. And then in the Mosaic Covenant, circumcision continues as an identification marker of those who are in the covenant, right? And again, it's administered to every child, okay? Males, all right? And so if you have one covenant and very clearly in that old covenant administration, you have uh, believers and their children who are circumcised when you get to the new covenant, the only thing that changes, the circumstance changes, same covenant, but the circumstance that changes is you go from circumcision to baptism. So baptism sacramentally replaces circumcision as to who belongs in the covenant. So, they would be external, physical members of the church. Okay? In fact, not confirmed members, but members of the church. Okay? And therefore, you have believers and unbelievers that are in the church by virtue of baptism. Now... Somebody says, well, Baptists have unbelievers in their, in their churches as well. And that's true. But we do it on accident. They do it on purpose. Okay? I mean, we may, we may admit somebody into membership that professes to know Christ but really doesn't. And we admit them on the basis of their profession of faith. And, and you end up having a mixed multitude, right? Um, but, but we're, we're trying to operate on a principle that says only those who, who are true Christians should be admitted as members of the church. This view says it's believers and their seed. And so, and now, now you end up with a serious problem, right? Now you end up with believing parents who have children who are visible members of the church well what do you do if those visible members never make a profession of faith and the confession explicitly says believers and their seed and you have 
baptized seed who now has more seed, what do you do with that seed? Anybody ever heard of the halfway covenant? Back in Jonathan Edwards' day, Jonathan Edwards' grandfather, Solomon Stoddard, was often called the Pope of the Connecticut River Valley. He was very influential. And uh, Solomon Stoddard ran into this problem. They, they practiced infant baptism. You had people that wouldn't had not yet confessed. By the way, everybody went to church. Okay? You didn't go to church, you got fined. Okay? Or worse. <laughs> so everybody went to church. But you had baptized people that were, were considered non-communicant. That is, they were not permitted to come to the Lord's table. Well, Solomon Stoddard actually started admitting unconverted people to the Lord's table because he thought if they received baptism, they should also receive the Lord's Supper. And the Lord's Supper may, might be a converting ordinance to them. So here you have unconverted people who are baptized, partaking of the Lord's Supper. They have children. And now what are you going to do with those children? And Solomon Stoddard said you baptize them too. So you know what you end up doing is you end up, and, and by the way, where this, where this view has taken hold, the ramifications have had an incredible deadening effect upon the church. Okay? And by the way, Jonathan Edwards, who's our family hero, we have his, his bust right in the kitchen. Um, uh, Edwards actually believed that unbelievers should not take the Lord's Supper and that the halfway covenant should not be administered. Okay. Now, that ends up creating this huge problem of having unconverted people who are visible members. But there's a second problem that emerged, and that is when you have um, this view of the church... This view of the church uh, was, was the common view at the time of the Reformation. So at the time of the Reformation, you had, you had different kinds of reformers. Okay? Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, people that we, we would admire, they were all called magisterial reformers. Magisterial, not because they were awesome, okay? magisterial because they believed in a state church. So, for instance, the, the difference between the American version of the Westminster Confession and the British version of the Westminster Confession is profound on the chapter regarding the civil magistrate. Because Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, all of these guys, different nuances, but all of these guys saw the civil magistrate as God's instrument to enforce sound doctrine and Christian conduct in society. Okay. So you would have, so let's say you were born in, um, in, in certain parts of Germany, you're German, and because that area may be Lutheran, you are baptized Lutheran, so you are a Lutheran by virtue of birth via baptism. State church. It is the very idea of the continuity of the covenant that actually ends up creating 
a system which I think the New Testament is radically opposed to, right? The, 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 the church is not, um, the church is not a, a nation in the sense that it is identified with a certain ethnicity or a certain nationality. The church under the new covenant is, is gloriously multinational, many tribes, many tongues, many peoples, right? And so that's what links us together. It's not that we share the same Dutch heritage or the same German heritage or the same Swiss heritage. It's that we share Christ, right? And so this idea of this classic covenant theology was actually a, 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 a radical, I, I think, it was a, a, a radically uh, misguided attempt that ends up creating a view of the church which is profoundly unbiblical, all right? So, covenants matter. How we understand the covenants matters. How we understand how they relate to each other matters, right? So what we're going to do is... Uh, in the next session, we're going to cover the covenant of works. Actually, do I have any time? What, what, what time am I supposed to be done? How are we supposed to start getting? 5.30. Well, I can go till 5.30? No. Some of us will leave. Give me some guidance here. Maybe Spurgeon here. 5 o'clock? That's not enough time for us to go. Okay, so what about... 445. What about what if I, if I went for um, 10 or 15 more minutes? Brian, with this group of people, the, the longer the better. <laughs> okay, it's 10 after. We're trying to make a congregational decision here. <laughs> what we need is a godly civil magistrate just to tell us what to do. We can leave by 430. The cooks can leave at 430. You guys can stay as long as you want. Okay, I'll finish at 430. How's that? That's not that's Okay, we're used to hour long function. Yeah, okay, that's that's great because I'm thinking hour and a quarter, but that's all right. Okay. So, I want I want to dive in a little bit into the covenant of works right now because um, this is is incredibly foundational for the way that we understand the rest of the Bible. Okay. So, uh, anybody ever hear of uh, Jay Gresham Machen? Okay, some of you. Um, <coughs> Machen was a hero in the early 20th century. He was Presbyterian, but he was a hero. Uh, he stood against liberalism. Um, his books are still in print. His most famous, Christianity and Liberalism. Um, but uh, Machen, he started uh, Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia when the Presbyterian Church in America was... Uh, the, what, what is now the PCUSA was going liberal in the 20s, sending out missionaries that didn't believe in the virgin birth or anything like that. Machen actually stood against the tide and was, was, was really heroic. And he ends up starting the Orthodox Presbyterian Church and so forth. Well, he goes to uh, North Dakota and um, he's ministering in, in these small churches, preaching. And he gets, uh, gets pneumonia. And on January 1st, 1937, J. 
Jay Gresham Machen sent this telegram to his colleague at Westminster Seminary, John Murray, and it simply read this. I am so thankful for the active obedience of Christ. No hope without it. Those were Machen's dying words. And my suggestion is that is that Machen's dying words directly relate to our understanding of the covenant of works. And so instead of, as it were, the, the covenant of works being some, uh, uh, you know, point of theology for ivory tower theologians, the doctrine of the covenant of works actually undergirds one of the most basic themes of our salvation which is the active obedience of Jesus Christ as the basis of our imputed righteousness. Now, I believe that the covenant of works not only reflects biblical theology, but it actually provides the necessary framework to understand the imputation of Adam's sin and the imputation of Adam's righteous or at Christ's righteousness. And so, um, the great old Dutch theologian Wilhelmus of Brockel says, acquaintance with this covenant, covenant of works, is of the greatest importance for whoever errs here or denies the existence of the covenant of works will not understand the covenant of grace and will readily err concerning the mediatorship of the Lord Jesus. Such a person will very readily deny that Christ by his active obedience has merited a right to eternal life for the elect. So what all of Brockle was saying was, you deny the covenant of works, and what you end up doing is you end up denying the active obedience of Christ, which is the basis of your accepted righteousness with God. And by the way, Brockle is absolutely right. Over the last um, 30 years, maybe, you've seen more and more evangelicals deny the active obedience of Christ, and then come to find out they had dismissed the covenant of works long before. All right? So as we talk about the covenant of works, it's called different things. Sometimes it's called the covenant of life. You'll see why in a second. Uh, sometimes it's called the covenant of nature. Sometimes it's called the Adamic administration. Sometimes it's called the creation covenant. But we're just going to stick with the covenant of works. And, um, and so what I'd like you to do is, is turn to Genesis chapter 2. <laughs> Genesis chapter 2. So in Genesis 2... Um, basically Genesis 1 and 2 work like this. Genesis 1 is the big picture of what God does in the six days of creation, right? It's in a sense sort of overview. It's sort of a creation prologue. It's what God does in the days. And then it just simply says in 1, 26 to 28 that God created man in his own image, his own image he created man, male and female. And so you have man created in the image and likeness of God. When you get to chapter 2, what happens 
is that there's sort of a there's sort of a telescoping that, that that happens. So now the emphasis ends up being on the creation of of man and woman, Adam and Eve, and God placing them in the garden. All right. So it's not two separate accounts. It's actually just a big picture and then a narrow picture. And so we have this very interesting statement in, in 2.15. Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. And we don't have time to, to go into this, but to cultivate and keep end up being, in a sense, priestly work, not just agrarian work. All right? Verse 16. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may freely eat. Now, is that gracious? Is that kind? Right? I mean, any tree, you can eat from it. But then verse 17, But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. Right? Now, when we talk about the covenant of works, what we're saying is that as we read these, these uh, early verses and then see uh, the way that these perspectives are developed, which we'll talk about other passages in a second, the word covenant is not in Genesis chapter 2. Okay? So some people immediately say, well, if the word covenant's not used, then what God does with Adam is not a covenant. Okay? Well, uh, the word covenant's not used in terms of uh, Adam and Eve being joined together as one flesh either. But I doubt anybody would, would say that that's not the marriage covenant, right? Um, 2 Samuel 7 God appears to David and makes with him, what do we call it? The Davidic covenant, right? Guess what word's not used in 2 Samuel 7? Covenant. But Psalm 89 speaks about the covenant made with David, all right? So just because a word is not present doesn't mean that the concept is not present, okay? And so as we look at this, we, we see that there are elements of the covenant of works. First of all, the covenant is between God and Adam. So Adam is created in, in uprightness and holiness, right? Uh, Ecclesiastes 7.29, God created man originally in uprightness. Okay? Adam is created as an image bearer. Was Adam created as a moral creature? In other words, did he have a, an innate moral sense? Yeah, absolutely. Right? I mean, he, he wasn't neutral, right? Um, he was created as a moral being, as, as an image bearer. Now, older theologians would argue that the reason was that when God created Adam, he imprinted the law upon his heart. Now, I think that that's true. I think that God actually imprints the moral law of God on Adam's heart so that, so that knowledge of and conformity to the law were embedded in his nature. In other words, Adam was equipped to obey. Okay? 
So think about this. Is, is Adam living in a fallen world or a perfect world? But just about a perfect world, right? He, he didn't have to worry about poverty or crime or, you know, all of the, the decaying social structures and anything like that. He was in about the most perfect world you could imagine this side of the eternal state. So externally, or if you prefer, environmentally, Adam lived in the best of all possible worlds. But it wasn't just Adam's external circumstances. Actually, God equipped Adam with the ability to obey by what he made him as a moral creature, as an image bearer. Now, is Adam required to render perfect obedience to God? By, by the way, this is just... This is a common sense question, right? If God makes Adam as a moral creature and then God requires obedience from Adam, do we know that God requires obedience from Adam? And the answer is, well, of course, we know it in general sense, creator, creature, king, servant, father, son, all of those imply subordination and obedience, but we also have the fact that God gave Adam an explicit command, right? And that explicit command was a demonstration of God's lordship and authority over Adam. So Adam is required to render obedience to God, but he's also required to render what kind of obedience? We would say perfect and perpetual. Right? In other words, there would never be any excuse or justification to violate one of God's commands. And so... Um, Romans 7.10 talks about uh, the commandment which was to result in life. Okay? Now, that, Romans 7 is interesting, but, but just keep that in mind. The, the commandment which was to result in life. Galatians 3.10-12, perfect obedience to all of God's commands is what's required. Okay? But here's Adam in the garden... By the way, if you think you would have done a better job than Adam, you're incredibly mistaken, all right? Adam lived in a near-perfect world in an unfallen state, okay? None of us have even know what that's like, all right? So Adam is, is like the best candidate for this, okay? And Adam, though, is, is created, this is important, he's created mutable. That is, Adam had not yet been tested in order to be confirmed in his holiness. Okay? So he's created in an upright state, okay? and he's created in the image of God and has the law imprinted on his heart, but Adam in the garden is able not to sin, And he is also able not to die. By the way, no human being since Adam has ever been in that state. In other words, God had equipped Adam with the ability not to sin. Which means God also equipped Adam with the ability not to die. Now, as we fill in this picture a little bit more, Adam stands in the garden 
not just on behalf of himself or even just on behalf of himself and his wife. Adam actually stands as the federal, federal is just a, a, a Latin word for covenant. Adam stands as the covenantal representative for all of the human race. Now we understand to some degree the idea of, of, of federal representation. By the way, believe it or not, um, I was going to say our country, but your country isn't my country, but um, our eternal country is the same, but it's not under the same laws, thank God. <laughs> In our country, we have, and I don't even, you know, Americans are so egocentric and ethnocentric. We don't know anything about Canada other than it's cold. And of course, we're wrong about that, too. So, but, uh, so we have a representative form of government, okay? Right? And that representative form of government is, is manifest at the state and then federal levels by people that go and represent us and as it were supposedly vote on our behalf, right? Represent us in Washington, represent us at the state capitol and so forth. That representative form of government, by the way, was not the brainchild of, uh, of, of Locke and Rousseau, it was actually the brainchild of the, of the Reformation. Okay? Federal theology actually, in a sense, was, was, was one of the driving engines behind uh, the, the form of government that, uh, that uh, America ended up adopting. Okay? So we understand the idea of, of representation to a degree, but Adam is standing there as the representative of the entire human race. So the covenant that God makes with Adam is a covenant that is made with Adam and all of Adam's posterity. And so we have passages that actually explain this very reality to us. So uh, Romans chapter 5, verses 12 to 21, is one of the most significant passages when it comes to understanding the, uh, the legal representation of Adam over the whole human race. In fact, Paul says very explicitly in Romans 5.12, that uh, through one man, sin entered into the world and death spread through sin. So all, because Adam sinned, all die. In other words, Paul's actually appealing to something that is, that is empirical, it's observable. And that is, Adam sinned, you died. Adam sinned, that sin is charged to your account. This is, this is what we simply call imputation. Okay? So Adam is the legal represent, uh, representative, stands, as it were, in our place. His sin is then legally imputed to us. So around verses 18 and 19, Paul talks about that through one act of disobedience, the many were constituted unrighteous or sinners, right? And so the idea is, is that when Adam sinned, he sinned rep representatively. That sin is then charged to our account. By the way, Eve offered the forbidden fruit to Adam. 
she'd already eaten it. Eve was not the federal representative of the human race. It was Adam. Which, by the way, ought to help us understand something in terms of the way that God has established male and female roles. It was Adam who was the head, and it was Adam's sin that then is imputed to us, not Eve's. Paul will say, as in Adam, all die. 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15. So the, all, of the, all of the elements of a covenant were there. And so let me just point out just a couple things, and then, um, then we'll, we'll take a break. Notice there's a stipulation. One of the things in a covenant is, um, is you have a, a, a condition, right? There's, um, you could call it a stipulation, you could call it a condition of the covenant. Um, by the way, we, we do this in, in marriage vows, right? We end up saying what we're going to do, right? Under what circumstances we're going to do and we're going to be committed for life, right? For better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, so forth, right? What are we doing? We're, we're making commitments and God says you can eat of all the trees of the garden which is incredibly gracious but there's only one that you may not eat which is in the midst of the garden tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the stipulation was actually just God commanding Adam you should you you shall not it's a sanction you shall not eat and life and death depend on the obedience of whether you eat or not. What was the threat? The, the, the Hebrew is, is, is very vivid. In the, for surely in the day that you eat, dying you will die. It's an emphatic form in, in the Hebrew. It's, a, it's intensification. And it is, it is absolutely underscored. And so there is the... Uh, this uh, sanction of death based on the stipulation of disobedience and then is there a promise of life? Think about it for a second. Is there a promise of life? We see most certainly the promise of death for disobedience do we see a promise of life for obedience. Kind of a tree of life. Okay. What's that? Tree of life. Oh, okay. So, yeah, you guys are reading my mind. You guys hit both hit it. Intrinsically, right? Or we could say implicitly. In other words, if there's a command not to eat, and then the threat, if you eat, you die, the corollary is a promise, right? Um, if I tell my, my son, uh, you better clean your room, and if you don't, I'm gonna whoop you from here to Sunday, okay? I could probably get arrested for saying that in Canada, right? Okay. So, <laughs> and then he goes and he cleans his room, he doesn't get the penalty, right? I mean, that's, that's just the way it works. So intrinsically or implicitly, there is, in a sense, sort of a corollary promise. So it's reasonable to assume that if death was threatened in the case of disobedience, 
that life would be promised in the case of obedience. Now, our brother brought up the tree of life. The presence of the tree of life in the midst of the garden, and then the fact that Adam is cut off from the tree of life in Genesis 3.22 is again another strong indication that the tree of life would have been, uh, as it were, um, the blessing or the reward for the obedience. Okay? And so, uh, in that, uh, in uh, uh, 3.22, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, and now he might stretch out his hand and also take of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Now, it was gracious of God to cut Adam off from access to the tree of life because if he would have eaten of the tree of life, he would have basically lived forever in a, in a fallen state separated from his creator. So it was gracious of God to do what he did. And so the tree of life represents sort of, a, uh, uh, or I should say the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil sort of represents a probationary test. So we'll, we'll finish with this. So here's Adam made in the image of God. The law of God is imprinted upon his heart. God created Adam to obey him. Okay. God then gives Adam what we would call a positive law. A positive law is a law that is not necessarily rooted in a moral basis. You shall not murder is rooted in morality, right? A moral basis. Man's made in the image of God, don't shed man's blood, okay? Because... In a sense, you're, you're, you're doing violence to the image of God. Don't steal. It's rooted in the moral principle of, of ownership of property. Don't commit adultery. is rooted in the, the moral authority of the marriage covenant, right? Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was a positive law. So the highway that connects our church to our home is Highway 395 and the speed limit is 65 miles per hour. Why? Why not 60? Or, as I prefer, 75. Okay. Why not? Well, because somebody at some point believed that 65 was the best. Because it's rooted in some great moral principle, the answer is no. It is, that is, in a sense, a positive law. The command not to eat ends up being a positive law, which is a specific test of Adam's loyalty and dependence on God. Okay? And so we're going to stop there. Uh, not the best place to stop, but I'll remember where we stopped, and we'll pick up um, uh, after, after dinner. Okay, let's pray together. Lord, thank you for this time. Thank you for your people. Lord, it is, it is such a blessing to know that there are people, your people, all over the world, and we're all united in Christ, and we give you thanks for this time, and we pray that you'd help us with these things. In Jesus' name, amen.